0: Imagine, for a moment, that you're in a vast, featureless room. There's a light, but you can't see where from. The only thing in this room is a cylinder laying on its side. Maybe it's a can of soda, or a pickle jar, or a barrel of oil that costs negative five dollars. It's not really important. But the light in this room shines on the object from two perpendicular sides, casting two perpendicular shadows, one circular and one rectangular. Now imagine that you're only allowed to see one of them, and then told by an echoing, disembodied voice, Determine the true shape of the object. It would be impossible. Assumptions that, to you, seem justified and appropriate, in reality, would lead you further away from the solution you sought. So, how then can we be certain in the larger pursuit of any given truth? Well, that's a good question. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 69 truth and shadow hidden history is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show and if you like what i do then subscribe to the show on spotify review it on apple podcasts and follow the show on twitter at h-i-d-d-n history pod so what was the purpose of the weird little story i just told you Well, like almost every single other thing on this show, it's a little tale that we can draw a number of insights from. The most obvious and least insightful of them is that things are not always as they seem, which is far from a profound finding. What I prefer to get out of that scenario is instead a larger question about the nature of knowing. This will be the first and last time that I say these four words on this show. But Donald Rumsfeld once said, There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. That last category, the unknown unknown, is incalculably larger than the other two combined. Our collective knowledge is just a single drop in an ocean of mystery that is entirely imperceptible to us. Obviously, the pursuit of the unknown is what allows us to expand the breadth of human knowledge, turning unknown unknowns into known unknowns. But... How can we be sure that what we perceive to be true is not, in fact, leading us in the wrong direction? After all, perception is not reality. To give a few examples of this, I want to talk about three things. Dinosaurs, Roman statues, and elephants. So at some point in your life, you've probably seen an illustration or a model, or a skeleton of a dinosaur. Maybe an Ankylosaurus, or a Triceratops, or a Velociraptor. And from those pictures, if you were told to create a general description of what any given dinosaur looked like, you'd probably say that they look like giant lizards. After all, in 1842, when paleontologists Richard Owen coined the term dinosaur. He did it with full knowledge that it came from the ancient Greek words for fearsome lizard. But you know what we found out over a hundred years later? That dinosaurs are very closely related to birds. And as a result, that means a large number of dinosaurs actually had feathers. Turns out, That fearsome velociraptor was actually covered in colorful plumage. We made an appropriate and safe guess based on the information available to us at the time, which we did not know was incomplete. The result was an imperceptible movement away from the truth. What would come to mind if I told you to picture an ancient Greek or Roman statue, or a temple in Athens or Rome. Now think, that building or statue, what is it made of? What does it look like? You're most definitely thinking of one thing, white marble, incredibly detailed, masterfully sculpted and designed, but bleach white. Now, the concept of whiteness in relation to ancient statuary is something that I would like to eventually do a whole episode on, so I'm not going to spoil it all here. I'll be relatively brief. The whiteness of the ancient world is a lie. Buildings, statues, personal goods, they were all vibrantly colored in a style called polychrome. But if a statue sits out in the sun for a thousand years, that color gets bleached away, And if a bust is buried underground for a thousand years, then that paint becomes damaged by the dirt and in many cases is removed entirely when the piece is cleaned. The myth took root astoundingly quickly. The white colonial powers of Europe, who saw themselves as heirs to the Greeks and Romans, took it as a sign that their statues of themselves were pure white. The Renaissance period cemented this myth into the artistic canon as sculptors who wished to pay homage to ancient art reproduced the style in shining white. Johann Winkelmann, a German archaeologist born in 1717, considered to be the father of Western art history, once wrote, The whiter the body is, the more beautiful it is. Color contributes to beauty, but it is not beauty. The German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once sanctimoniously said that savage nations, uneducated people, and children have a great predilection for vivid colors. People of refinement avoid vivid colors in their dress and in the objects that are about them. Now, of course, these are the musings of a very racist man who wants a historical justification for his massive superiority complex. Because Doesn't the fact that the ancient Greeks and Romans loved color make him look like a giant asshole? But even though Goth is incredibly wrong, that didn't stop that kind of philosophy from absolutely consuming the world of art history. On archaeological digs, when people found statues or pieces of pottery with bits of color in them, they would do one of two things— They would either claim that the piece in question was the product of an earlier, uncivilized tribe that valued color, or they would strip off every trace of it. As a result of white supremacy's role in the art world, pieces from the classical era must fit a certain narrative. Never mind the fact that the ancient peoples of the Mediterranean did not conceive of race in the way we do, and did not discriminate based on skin color. Ancient art must be white. If it isn't, then it makes obvious the fact that the Western canon of quote-unquote fine art is based on intentional ignorance and a fetishization of whiteness so absolutely insane that the evidence never stood a chance." This is a case where our knowledge was so incomplete, but we were so confident in the narrative that it delivered, that we ended up destroying art because of it. To this day, dealers and restorers will thoroughly scrub any trace of paint from Greek and Roman statuary. Jan Stube ostergaard formerly a curator at Copenhagen's Ny Carlsberg Glyptotek Museum, which specializes in Greek and Roman statues, said in an interview for an article in the New Yorker that saying you've seen these sculptures when you've only seen the white marble is comparable to somebody coming from the beach and saying they've seen a whale because there was a skeleton in the sand. And so on to the last of these three. I want to read you a parable from the Udana, one of the earliest examples of Buddhist scripture. It goes a little bit like this. On a certain occasion, the Blessed One dwelt at Savathi, in the Jetavana, the garden of Anathapindika. Now, at that time, a large number of Samanas Brahmanas, and wandering monks of various heretical sects, holding a variety of views, doubters on many points, having many diverse aspirations and recourse to that which relates to various heresies, entered Savathi for alms. Some of these Samanas and Brahmanas held that the world is eternal, and contended that this view was true and every other false. Some said, The world is not eternal. Some said the world is finite. Some said the world is infinite. Some said the soul and the body are identical. Some said the soul and the body are not identical. Some said the perfect one continues to exist after death. Some said the perfect one does not continue to exist after death. Some said the perfect one exists and does not exist after death. Some said, the perfect one neither exists nor does not exist after death. Each contending, their view was true and every other false. These quarrelsome, pugnacious, cavilling monks wounded one another with sharp words, declaiming, such is the truth, such is not the truth, the truth is not such, such is the truth. And a number of monks robing themselves in the forenoon and taking their alms bowls and tunics entered savathi for alms and when they had returned from their rounds and finished their meal they went to where the blessed one was and drawing near they saluted the blessed one and sat down apart and while thus sitting they said to the blessed one just now sire A large number of Samanas and Brahmanas and wandering monks holding various heresies entered Savathi for alms, and they were disputing amongst themselves, saying, This is the truth, such is not the truth, etc. These heretical monks, he responded, are blind, eyeless. They know not what is right, they know not what is wrong. They know not what is true, they know not what is false. These monks, not perceiving what is right, Not perceiving what is wrong, not perceiving what is true, not perceiving what is false, become disputatious, saying, Such is the truth, such is not the truth, etc. In former times, O monks, there was a king in this town of Savathi. And the king, O monks, called a man to him and said, Go thou and collect all the men born blind in Savathi and bring them here. Be it so, Lord." said the man in assent to the king. And he went to Savathi, and he brought all the men born blind in Savathi to where the king was. And drawing near, he said to the king, Lord, all the men blind from their birth in Savathi are present. Pray then, bring an elephant before them. Be it so, Lord, said the man in assent to the king. And he brought an elephant into the presence of the blind men and said, This, O blind men, is an elephant. To some of the blind men he presented the head of the elephant, saying, Such, O blind men, is an elephant. To some he presented the body, saying, Such is an elephant. To some the feet, saying, Such is an elephant. To some he presented the back, saying, Such is an elephant. To some he presented the tail saying, Such is an elephant. The showmen, O monks, having presented the elephant to these blind ones, went to where the king was, and drawing near said to the king, The elephant, Lord, has been brought before the blind men. Do now as seems fit. And the king went to where the blind men were, and drawing near said to them, Do you now know what an elephant is like? Assuredly, Lord, We now know what an elephant is like. Tell me, then, O blind men, what is an elephant like? And those blind men, O monks, who had felt the head of the elephant, said, An elephant, sir, is like a large round jar. Those who had felt its ears said, It is like a winnowing basket. Those who had felt its tusks, it is like a plowshare. Those who had felt its trunk, it is like a plow. To those who had felt its body, it is like a granary. Those who had felt its feet said it is like a pillar. To those who had felt its back, it is like a mortar. And those who had felt its tail, it is like a pestle. And so they all fought amongst themselves with their fists, declaring such is an elephant, such is not an elephant. An elephant is not like that, it is like this. And the king, O monks, was highly delighted. In exactly the same way, O monks, do these heretical people, blind and without insight, dispute amongst themselves, saying, This doctrine is true every other is false. And the Blessed One, in this connection, on that occasion, breathed forth this solemn utterance. Well is it known that some Samanas and Brahmanas, who attach themselves to methods of analysis and perceiving only one side of a case, disagree with one another. That, obviously, is the parable of the blind men and the elephant, and there are a number of ways to interpret this story, but for the purposes of this episode, what this story reminds us is that perception is not reality. Now, this is a story that is contingent on the existence of a larger objective truth, which is something many people search for, but, to my knowledge, nobody's quite found yet. To the blind men in this story, their guesses are perfectly reasonable. The king is only entertained because he can see what they cannot. The perception of these men is limited by something outside of their control. If they had lived their entire lives only in contact with other men who were blind from birth, then they would have no idea what vision is. Their similarity as a group, their collective lived experience, has led to them perceiving the world in a vastly different way. Now, this parable describes, of course, blind men, but obviously it's not a literal blindness, it's a metaphor in this case, for an impenetrable shroud of ignorance, one that cannot be broken despite all evidence that contests the belief in question. This episode has largely been about the nature of truth, and what it means to pursue truth in an uncertain world. Now, the three segments that I've told here approach the truth in different ways, Our first two cases, of dinosaurs and statues, frame the truth as an objective entity that must be uncovered by continual work, like the waves on the sea slowly eroding a stone. The parable of the blind men and the elephant presents a much different view. In this story, the truth is objective and composite. It's greater than the sum of its parts. Every single thing that the blind men say about the elephant is true. Seemingly, they're all in conflict with each other. How can the same thing be both like a large jar and a granary? For dinosaur fossils and ancient statues, the truth is limited by effort. For the blind men, the truth is limited by perception. None of them have ever seen an elephant, how could they even hope to determine what it really looks like? All they can do is desperately grasp at elements reaching out of the unknown unknown, and claim it as the absolute truth. Sound familiar? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Hidden History on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter at HIDDN History Pod. This is Ellis Tucci, signing off. We breathe, we're all.